America's COVID-19 death toll just crossed 100,000 people. Masks have become a cultural and political fault line. And the WHO warns of a second peak after social distancing restrictions have been relaxed across the United States. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. As an epidemiologist, I struggle with the fact that so much of my profession is about numbers. Numbers are powerful things. They help us understand scale and magnitude to understand cause and effect. But numbers are really bad at conveying the fabric of gain or loss, what it means to us as humans, as souls. On Wednesday, the American COVID-19 death toll surpassed 100,000 people. When folks belittle COVID-19, they often use numbers, comparing it to this or that disease. Alone, 100,000 is undeniable. If it killed no one else in 2020, COVID-19 has already killed enough people this year to be the seventh leading cause of death. But numbers don't do this loss justice. When we consider for a second what it means to lose 100,000 lives in four months, the word meaning isn't even big enough. Those were mothers and fathers, sisters and brothers, friends and lovers. They were kindergarten teachers and home builders and poets and little league coaches. They were people. With their lives, we lost 200,000 shoulders to cry on, ears to listen to our joy and our pain. I hope that, even after the worst of COVID-19 is past, we never forget. Meaning is a deep thing. We all come to it in different ways. But I know that many of us are struggling harder to find it right now. Today, I wanted to talk to a few people who've been thinking a lot about it. For a lot of people, faith has been both a comfort and a challenge right now. A comfort because for many, it helps provide that meaning. A challenge because, well, organized religion is a communal activity. And that's kind of hard to do under quarantine. That's why our episode today feels a bit like a bad joke. A rabbi, a pastor, and an imam walk into it, well, they stay home, it's quarantine. We'll speak with Rabbi Rachel Kontroster, Deputy Director of Trua, the Rabbinic Call for Human Rights in New York, Reverend Jill Zandel of Detroit Central Methodist Church, and Imam Muhammad al-Masmari, the Imam of my childhood masjid, the Muslim Unity Center in Michigan. But before we speak with our guests, I want to make a note. Though our episode only features three voices from three different faith perspectives, we know that making meaning comes in many stripes, including no faith at all. One of my guests today is Rabbi Rachel Kontroster, who is the deputy director of Trua, the Rabbinic Call for Human Rights. And Rabbi Rachel, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we're excited to uh, to chat because, you know, we're talking to faith leaders from across several different faiths and uh, wanted to understand broadly the way that COVID-19 has affected communities of faith. C- can you talk about how it has affected the Jewish community? It's affected the Jewish community very profoundly. Our communities get together and celebrate our religious life with others, Um, whether that's traditional communities who require 10 people to pray or the community meals that we do together in the celebration of the holidays or the fact that we draw comfort and strength from celebrating lifestyles and praying in community. It's just it's part of the fabric of who we are. And so the fact that this has meant that we are distanced from each other has been really traumatizing. But on the other hand, one of the key values in Judaism is the preservation of life. So that that is really, really important. That takes precedence over um, 
whether we should get together in person. And I think there's also been a real strong recognition from the Jewish community that these are unprecedented times and that unprecedented times requires an unprecedented response. So the Jewish community locked down very early. I live in the New York City area in Teaneck, New Jersey, um, and some of the early cases were linked to the Jewish community in, in, the, in the greater New York area. And so synagogues shut down very early. We actually, um, there was a ruling from the Rabbinical Council of Bergen County um, that closed synagogues and sort of every facet of public Jewish life extremely early. You know, it was it was synagogue services and Sabbath meals and um, the way that people socialize, saying no play dates, like just everyone. And these are communities who are used to being together and saying, no, it is important that we preserve life. And so you, we saw, and then people had to think about how to be creative. And so people had to move to Zoom services in communities where that was possible. Not every not every denomination in Judaism allows for using electricity on our Sabbath. So some groups have really transitioned to online services. Some have really not been able to hold their Sabbath services. They can hold their weekday services during the pandemic. And that's traumatic, but it's also provided opportunity because I think there's a real value in saying that we cannot really be a whole community unless the people who are most vulnerable in our community can be present in services. And that's the value going forward as well, that we really should be very cautious in reopening um, rather than rushing towards being together, much as like we really miss each other. It's hard not to be with the mm-hmm. people you see every week. I know that um, that Passover was was early on uh, in the lockdown. What did yes. Passover under lockdown look like? Passover under lockdown was was really different for people. I think you know, in comparison to what I just said about you know a lot of Jewish life being celebrated through the synagogues and in communities, Passover is a home ritual. And it's very, very widely observed among American Jews, even among ones who don't view themselves as particularly religious. It's a time to get together with family. People have meals maybe, you know, with people they don't see all that much. And so to have to do it from a distance um, really was was hard. And so I think we saw people seizing the opportunity to do um, Seder, the, the the gathering for Passover by Zoom, um, and then trying to ask ourselves, well, what does that mean? You know, is it a chance like to get together a lot of people? Should we try and just do it the same, right? There's, there's a question of, is this a moment for sameness and just moving everything virtual or really trying to create new ritual and new ways of connecting? So I know in my family, we did two different Zoom seders with with different parts of our family and they were very different. But it, it's it's challenging when, when you have a rhythm to your life that's brought about by, by your religious observance. So, you know, the Passover, part of how you know that spring is coming is because it's Passover and you, there are the people you see and the foods that you eat and maybe you can't get them this year. You can't be with those people and have those connections and saying, well, this is a different time. I think it was very hard. I'm thinking ahead now to the fall high holidays. Um, you know, a lot of states are opening up, but many synagogues will not be reopening in the same way for the high holidays, even if they're able to. And the high holidays for many Jews are the only time of year they go to synagogue. And so like the loss, if Passover was really about the lot, you know, try to connect with family and friends in new ways, the high holidays, I think will be about trying to connect with the broader community in new ways. And, and thinking about hybrid services, I just think that we are seeing the Jewish community be very cautious and also experimenting with new ways to connect. Mm. And um, you are a leader in an organization that's focused on uh, empowering and bringing rabbis together. Can, can you speak to how rabbis have answered the call? Absolutely. So Troah, where I work, is a Jewish human rights organization. We are the moral voice of the Jewish community. We represent 2,000 rabbis and cantors across North America. And I think what we're hearing from them is that they are completely overwhelmed and yet rising to the challenge. Clergy in this moment are the essential, some of the essential workers we don't talk about because they're both 
handling the results of the pandemic directly. So some of them, especially in hotspots, have been doing a tremendous number of funerals and having to connect with families who are grieving, who cannot be present for each other or for loved ones. And they're also having to experiment with how do you build religious services at a time when you're used to getting together and you can't. And many of them are dealing with the trauma in their own lives. I, you know, I, I hear from, from clergy friends who are, you know, like so many of us, their kids are home. Um, they're trying to be full-time rabbis and full-time parents. And, and that's really challenging. Um, and, and, you know, I'll see on Facebook pictures of them, you know, with their kids, you know, they're leading online services and, and their kids are, are in the picture and, and having to deal with those things at once. But they are stepping up to try and and meet the moment that we're in. Um, one thing that we've tried to do is that they're asking us also, the members of True are committed to the work of justice. And uh, we're you know, often connecting with the people who are most vulnerable and, and speaking to those issues as faith leaders. Um, so, you know, the Truah's rabbis are continuing to speak out about, you know, for example, you know, the, the out, many of them are involved in ending mass incarceration in their states and, and speaking to their governors about the outbreak of COVID in prisons. We have a very strong relationship as an organization with the Coalition of Immokalee Workers in Florida, who are a farm worker human rights organization. Um, who have been speaking who have been speaking out on behalf of the essential workers who provide our food. And one piece that the coalition has made that we amplify as religious leaders is that the reason we should support essential workers is not just because of what they provide for us, right? You know, it's not just because they feed us, but because they are human beings and they need to be protected. You know, it is the moral and right thing to do. And that's an important thing for faith leaders to hold up, especially right now when the priorities of states that are rushing to reopening seem so off base, right? You know, that, that people want to be able to go to the hairdresser without thinking of the rights of the person or the humanity of that person who is, um, who is giving them a haircut or who is, you know, you know um, who is the essential worker at the grocery store and how do we protect them and hold up their inherent humanity? I think that's a really important role that our rabbis mm-hmm. are, are holding. And toward that end, um, how, how are folks from your faith community using this moment and leaning on their faith to organize in response? Um, I think I'm going to think of a teaching. I heard this from Rabbi Ellen Lipman, who's in Brooklyn, but she heard it from Rabbi David Stern, who's in Texas. So a lot of sharing of wisdom. Um, in the in the book of Genesis, there's a moment uh, where the patriarch Jacob uh, is, he has, he's, he's run away from home and he's sleeping and he sees a vision of God and he wakes up and he says, like, God was in this place and I did not know. And what Rabbi Stern said is that, like, this is a moment of embracing I do not know right? That you're just having to say, I don't know a lot. I don't know what the future brings. And and really being able to be a clergy person in this moment and and live with the fact that we don't know the answers, I think is also, it's important for centering ourselves. I think it's really important wisdom for our communities that we don't know. Um, and I also, and then also to be able to, to, to embrace the short term rather than the long term. So that's one, I think we're finding meaning in our teachings. I also think we're asking ourselves questions of like, how did our community survive other pandemics? You know, we started to think, well, what did people teach during the, the 1918 flu pandemic? Um, that's not, you know, the, the Torah, the wisdom that we necessarily know and, and, what, um, and what can that teach us? And then we're also saying, how can our faith 
help us answer the ethical questions that we're being faced with right now. So at Trua, we're beginning to ask questions around economic justice um, that we're, you know, what I've already talked about essential workers, but, you know, how, you know, looking at from a faith perspective questions of, you know, how long should we keep paying the people in our lives, like our our housekeepers or our our babysitters, even if if they're not working for us, you know, that's important that they be sustained. But what happens if we lose our job? What does Judaism have to say about those economic issues? What does Judaism have to say about the the essential workers taking risks on our behalf? Um, And also, you know, what does Judaism have to say about other questions that are troubling, like around surveillance? You know, what how do we balance this question of saving a life with our other sacred priorities? Um, I think, and that, and to frame our understanding of the risks that we take, not as, you know, my own self and needs versus someone else's needs, but really understanding that, that they're all being asked in the same universe of valuing people's lives and that there's Mm -hmm. giving no perfect solution, but our tradition has wisdom to give. Mm -hmm. That's, uh, that's beautiful. And I I appreciate you um, sharing that, that, uh, that, that passed on and inherited wisdom, I guess, you know, it, it all comes from one source anyway. Um, and I really, really appreciate you uh, highlighting that. Um, so thank you so much for your wisdom and your time and your leadership and your reminders. And um, hope that uh, we get to get to see each other in person, uh, hopefully when this clears up all soon. All right. Thank you. Take care. More from Reverend Jill and Imam Muhammad after the break. I am privileged today to be uh, to be joined by Reverend Jill Zundel from Detroit United Methodist Church. Um, I got to know uh, Reverend Jill uh, when I ran for governor, and then uh, again uh, afterwards, she's done incredible uh, social justice work uh, in in the city. So, really grateful uh, to have you with us today. Thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me. I, I want to jump right in. Um, how has COVID-19 impacted uh, your community? Well, we really wrestled about shutting down and we waited to hear from our bishop. Um, but then I made the decision on March for the worship service on March 15th that we wouldn't have it uh, because it just wasn't safe. And we had um, we have a nurse who uh, specializes in infectious diseases and said that that was the right call. So what we've done, we started out by me just taping myself preaching in an empty sanctuary with no music or anything. Um, And now we've morphed into Zoom worship where everybody signs in on Sunday morning because it really is about community. And they don't want to just see me, they want to see each other. So we have um, about 70 people signing on. So so we've learned how to do Zoom. We've learned how people who don't have technology can call in and listen to the worship service. We, we mail out manuscripts to people who don't have technology, but we're trying to get them to have tablets of some sort so that they can see each other as well. But yeah, so March 13th was really when we started dealing with all of this. And like we've been saying, we're running a marathon that we've never trained for. We have no idea. There's nothing written. You don't learn about this in seminary, so you have to figure it out as you go along. There's no pandemic response class in seminary? No, no. <laughs> I mean, I, I went to medical school and, uh, and did a PhD in epidemiology, and of course, pandemic response was, was part of our courses. I just want to make sure that that's not part of the curriculum elsewhere. Well, it would be helpful now for seminarians to learn that. <laughs> Um, but we're still, um, we, we feed the homeless four days a week. So that's still going on. 
And we had to adjust what that looked like because we used to do that on the second floor. It was a community center. People would gather. They could stay there all day. Um, and so now we have to let five people in at a time. And we have a hand washing station now set up in the lobby of the church. And then they go through and get their lunches, go down a hallway, and are able to check on their mail. Um, and then we have a phone there if they need to make phone calls and stuff like that. And then we have um, them trying to get into housing. We've got some people working on that, some social workers and stuff like that. So that is still going on. And then in our art gallery, which is next door, our peace gallery, we had um, Jarrett Schloff, who does Pingree pen- um, Boots. He uh, shut that down for a week, and he had a whole crew making face shields cut right out of the gallery. So, so even though the sanctuary, like we say, the sanctuary is shut down, but the church is still moving forward. Yeah, I, you know that's the um, that is the that is the the second time I've heard that, um, and I'm, I'm glad to hear that that is a, a cross denominational approach because I think that's that's absolutely right. One of the things that happened uh, during the um, lockdown was, of course, uh, Easter holidays. Um, can can you talk about what it was like to have an Easter? Uh, socially uh, distanced? Well, we had two options because the bishop recorded something for um, for us to use if, if clergy wanted that day off. Um, so we kind of did a Zoom worship that was, um, we talked about that really the celebration of Easter, we're going to do really a big celebration of Easter when we come back together. So we kind of we kind of identified um, our feelings of that day of fear of anger of sadness, um, and we named it because it wasn't like any other Easter. And so we did that, and then um, we encouraged people to watch the bishop's message too. But um, I didn't feel like saying just watch the bishop's message because I felt like we needed to see each other on that day and and really identify with each other's feelings of of how it was difficult not to be together and singing the wonderful hymns and, and seeing each other and hugging each other. And so there was laughter, there was tears. Um, one, one of the things that we do um, during our worship at the end, we have a dance party. So we always have an uplifting song so everybody gets out of their chairs and dances around and gets their energy going. So that was part of it too. So we had joy at the end of, of our Easter celebration as much as you could being apart. That's uh, that's beautiful. I um, you know, I, I I'm uh, as part of this episode speaking to um, both a uh, rabbi and an imam as well, and um, you know, all three have experienced a, a major holiday uh, in lockdown, and it's it's uh, you know, it, it is such a, a stark reminder of both what's lost, but also uh, that irrepressible um, human nature of being able to celebrate. And, you know, we're really grateful um, uh, that we get to live in circumstances where uh, the dampers on our joy and our celebration aren't that obvious for those of us with privilege. Um, but it is, it's a real reminder that even in, in hard circumstances, there's something beautiful about the human spirit that, uh, that lifts up. Um, c- can you talk to how, as a clergy person, um, how have you Uh, led a response to COVID-19? Well, I would say, you know, we've, we've been real intentional about people listening to the experts, not necessarily political leaders. Um, We've, we've led with that. We always have. Um, 
but we also had to adjust how we're still reaching out to the community, right? We couldn't say, okay, there's 200 homeless people. We're not going to let you in our building. So, um, and then we had folks start making masks and figuring out how to make hand sanitizer in a small way and those kind of things. So we're still the church. We just had to shift our focus a little bit. Um, we have those water um, hand-washing stations in our lobby, but the hose actually goes down through the gallery through a door. And so somebody said to me yesterday, can we just drill a hole here? I'm like, sure, <laughs> because nothing is real anymore. So every day it's a different thing. And so I have a lot of my clergy friends and I who are just doing things differently, trying to figure it out. I think we're getting better at it. As we go along each week, how do we connect with those people who aren't on the internet and how do we keep them connected to the church? Um, and we've also had folks buying each other groceries, dropping them off on porches and that kind of thing. Really, they've stepped up to become the church. So it's not just the pastor reaching out, but it's people checking on each other. Uh, so that's been really helpful. Um, and Central always has a history of, of reaching out and making sure the, the lowest of our, you know, communities are being taken care of. And we also have a few folks who are fighting um, because of the water shutoffs. They still haven't opened up everybody's water, even though they say they have. And so we've been working with uh, Michigan Welfare Rights to make sure that people get water. Thank you. And I was going to ask, um, you know, of course, this has been a, a real shock for, for so many people. How are community members leaning on faith to, to cope? I have a lot of people who will call me and just ask me for prayer, for just a calming mm. of their spirit, uh, because there is so much anxiety right now. There is so much unknown. And we know that God is a, is mm -hmm. a known entity and God is someone who we can lean on. And so they call me as a representative of God because, you know, I work for the church, but we sit there and we cry together, mm. we pray together. Um, and then, you know, they, they tend to feel more calm after we've had those conversations, but it's just, there's so much anxiety building up that they don't have a release for it. And so Sunday morning is a way mm. that we really confess to each other how we're feeling, really being honest and mm. really being okay with shedding tears and, and that kind of thing. But I think more than anything, this has made them realize how important our community of faith is to hold each other up during these kinds of times. I mean, um, May 31st is Pentecost. It's our celebration of the birth of the church. And I rem I'm going to mm -hmm. remind them that when the, the church was born, there wasn't a building, right? It was just people gathering together right. and helping each other and sharing what each other had. And that's what's happening right now. So we're doing church. It's just a different way, and it's a more active way than we have. It's not just coming in and sitting in a pew and being fed something, but it's we're, we're doing a dialogue, and we're helping each other, and it's not just a passive thing anymore. And I, so that part I see as a good thing coming out of this, um, that we're recognizing that church is different. Yeah, well, we uh, we hope that um, that you can always continue to fight, find that balance and really grateful for the work that you do in the community. Um Reverend Jill, thank you so much for uh, your leadership and for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, so my guest today is a great friend of mine and the imam of the masjid that I grew up in, uh, Imam Muhammad al-Masmari. Imam, thank you so much for taking the time to, uh, to join us today. Thank you so much, Dr. Abdul, for, for having me.
No, it's our it's our privilege. I um I'm I'm, I'm as you know I'm doing an episode uh, looking at the the faith community and um, COVID nineteen, and so I you know I, I have a probably better flavor uh, for how COVID nineteen has impacted uh, the Muslim community, but um, you know I don't spend uh, all of my days thinking about this like you do. Um, can, can you tell us how has COVID nineteen affected the Muslim community? So. For me, personally, I think it's affected the community in many ways. It's a new experience for all. Uh, just the stay-at-home order, people now are uh, spending a lot of time at home. People are dealing with their kids. Kids are no longer in school. Uh, the parents now are challenged with having a full day of schedule. Their teachers, their parents, their caretakers, everything uh, at, the same, at the same time. With all of that, you can no longer go outside. The gyms are closed, which many people consider as a gateway uh, towards uh, self-care and, and giving back to themselves and appreciating their bodies. That is no longer there. Many people found, find themselves at the malls. They can no longer go to the mall. So all of this affects someone spiritually and, of course, mentally. So uh, this is when when we come in and we try to calm people down. We try to tell them this is, this is a challenge that we have to... Uh, overcome together and of course marriages now knowing that people uh, are forced to spend time with each other it's no longer the same where you have an eight hour job you come home both spouses are tired and they go to sleep or they just move on take care of their kids and go to sleep now they have to confront their issues heads-on and uh, so even in marriages and families and children all of these are challenges that I can say people never thought were there in the absence of all the distractions, we, uh, 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 you can say all the distractions that we have, uh, thinking that these issues were never there, now they're uh, at the surface and people just have to deal with them. So I do believe, regardless of all the politics and the economics, this will have uh, a long-term effect, mm. even on families. Mm. I know, um, you know, this uh, Ramadan um, has has been very different. Uh, and, you know, I was, I was speaking to the rabbi and the the pastor, um, and they experienced Passover and, and Easter under a quarantine. Can you speak to um, how quarantine has affected the experience of, of Ramadan? So one good outcome is that nothing replaces physical presence. And now we get to understand what the Prophet meant and how he taught his, his followers the importance of, of congregating together, coming together, praying together in congregation uh, is far more greater than praying at home and the rewards of doing so. Now we got a deep, deeper understanding of what the Prophet, peace be upon him, was referring to. So, and, and this is one of the greatest challenges is that people were trying to find an alternative for physical presence and from the get-go we told people it will never be the same we'll try to provide some alternatives but the idea of uh, of replacing what we had is impossible and i do feel that that provided people with a lot of ease people were at at peace knowing that that can never be reached so their expectations were a, a bit lower but then we try to connect people to the mosque as much as we can you have many imams that went out of their way to provide people with Quranic services, making sure that Quran is being recited so they can remember the night prayer they engaged in. The same spiritual reminders continued. So many people were still connected to, to their institutions. But 
everything had to be reframed. The idea that you would walk into a mosque and just give your talk, greet the people and leave was no longer there. There's many technical issues. What happens? Who's late? You're relying on a whole team. So it's a new experience that we've yet to experience. And then you have many people that come in late and then they want you to repeat. It's a new set of challenges. But I do believe that in the midst of difficulty and challenges is, is uh, you know, we, we find that which is positive. There's always positivity. There's always uh, a way... To, to remain hopeful and and that's I, gu- I guess one of the greatest lessons we learned from all of this mm. and how has that uh, manifest for the community what what are some of those glimmers of hope that you feel like people have really picked up uh through ramadan and quarantine so the idea for, for me just speaking to many people people never thought that they can be in solitude to us, when we spoke about being in solitude and engaging in this act of worship that we consider one of the greatest acts of worship was something that people thought can never be practiced. You know, it's, it's, it's an act of worship they thought they can never engage in. Suddenly now, at home, they can pray at home, they can pray with their kids, they can pray with their spouses. So for many people, as Allah mentions in Quran, and this was a message that was given to Musa, to Moses, and it was given to the children of Israel, and make from your homes places of prayer. This was never understood. For me personally, I've gone over that verse so many times, but never paid attention to it. And now with, with everything that's happening, people remain hopeful. People now realize the good in their homes and how they can come together. And uh, they can rely on simple circles at home in the absence of a scholar or the absence of the sheikh or the imam of the masjid. All of that was discovered uh, within our communities and from simple individuals that didn't know much about the religion to begin with. Mm. And, um, you know, as a, as, a, as a clergy person yourself, an imam uh, of, a, of a large, um, thriving uh, masjid in, in Michigan, how have you and, and other clergy people thought about uh, trying to answer the call uh, of the challenges of this unique moment? What can I say? There's, number one, with other imams, along with many other imams, our number one concern was safety. So even before the executive order was made, we asked the imams and leaders of the communities to close down their mosques. So that was the first uh, great challenge. It wasn't easy to write that document where we asked Masajid to close uh, to close the doors or to close its doors. The other thing was, how can we find alternatives? So many imams were not social media savvy, so providing people with an alternative, making sure other mosques are are also uh, engaged in, in communal activities, making sure that people are connected. So we had to rediscover that with, with many imams, and we were learning from other imams, and we were asking other imams what their experiences was, and again, we, 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 we grew together. And the other thing is, we uh, one of the challenges that we felt was addressed is that we had to continue with counseling. So the imams had to deal with counseling. The counseling cases ha- has increased uh, since since uh, COVID nineteen and since the stay at home and or- stay home order and people are home. So we, we we've been talking to each other. What lectures should we give in the future? Uh, how, how do we address these communal issues that we never thought were there? So it, it's just these are the conversations that we've been having as imams, and we continue to meet. We continue to address these issues, and it's it, it's never ending. We've never been more busy than this uh, the, the Zoom era, if you want to call it that. 
Yeah, we're just so overwhelmed with Zoom, trying our best to serve our community in a time where people may feel neglected. We just want to connect with them as much as we can by giving them private calls, giving them private messages, connecting with people in need. And I can speak for other imams that have been doing the same thing. Yeah. Um, and, and more broadly, how have you found that community members are uh, leaning on their faith to cope with this? Of course, just reminding people that that after difficulty comes ease. And what we've also been reminding people that we had so many blessings that we enjoyed day in and day out. And now with a simple challenge, uh, maybe what we had was not appreciated. Now people just wish to, to, to walk to certain places or to enjoy the parks or walk through the mall or walk, whatever it may be, or travel. These are blessings that we had that we did not fully appreciate. So we've been just telling people this is a test. And in times of trials, we're asked to not go through them, but grow through them. So rediscovering ourselves, uh, empowering ourselves, and utilizing whatever it is to embedder who we are, to become better people. And so we're trying to take something negative and turn it into something positive. And, and it's not polishing things. We really mean it. Uh, a wise person is a person that is able to replace. So there's something negative. They're able to discover the good in it. And they utilize whatever was was replaced, the good that was that replaced the evil. And they, they set that as a foundation towards their growth. And and this is just a, the positive mindset that we're trying to provide for people. And for me personally, I did fee, find that work for, for many families that we've spoken to. Um, I'm really, really grateful to you for your leadership in the community and for sharing that perspective. I know, uh, you know, Ramadan for me is, um, is so much about the experience of, uh, of obviously fasting and, and praying, which is a very, um, a very, uh, solitary experience, particularly fasting, but, um, but the experience of praying at night, uh, at the mosque is a very communal, uh, experience. And, um, it's been such a different uh, kind of Ramadan, and I can't imagine what it's like for you. So I really appreciate you uh, sharing that perspective. We uh, we hope that uh, we get to see you and, uh, and and come to the masjid soon. And um, uh, and and until then, uh, stay safe and uh, and Eid uh, Mubarak. Thank you so much. As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. Masks have become a cultural and political fault line. But science tells us that they're critical to slowing the spread of COVID-19 as we open up. Will people pay attention to science or will politics get in the way? Wearing masks is recommended uh, for, for people to help reduce the spread. In your view, does it make a difference to encourage that when public servants set an example by wearing a mask, as, as you often do when you, when you appear in public? Well, Jim, I think we certainly should be recommending it. I mean, as you know, I wear it whenever I'm outside, uh, you know, and, I, and we can try and keep the usual distance, but sometimes it's out of your control. Next week, we'll be chatting about the role of social media in the pandemic. We want to hear from you. Email us a voice memo at americadissected at crooked.com. How are you using social media to catch up on COVID-19 news in the midst of this pandemic? Have you encountered online misinformation? Have you found social media more helpful or harmful? Again, email us a voice memo at americadissected at crooked.com, and you may hear your voice on our next episode. If you'd like to support organizations on the front lines caring for some of America's most vulnerable, donate to Crooked's Coronavirus Relief Fund at crooked.com slash coronavirus. 
America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Stephen Hoffman is our senior producer. Charlotte Landis mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra and Sydney Rapp. The theme song is by Takaya Suzawa and Alex Sugiera. Our executive producer is Sarah Geismer. And I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El Sayed. Thanks for listening. 